message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Genesis 45. Don't know that we're going to see anywhere in the Old Testament. You can certainly challenge me on this. And I will be up for the challenge. I I would love for you to challenge me in in this. I don't know that we see a better picture of the gospel in the Old Testament than in Genesis chapter 45. I'll explain that a little bit later and why that's important for us to not just hear stories in this narrative here, but, but to truly understand why God would give us types of Christ in the Old Testament. And what does that mean? Was Joseph, you know, Christ? No. He was a type of Christ that we see in the Old Testament because already here in Genesis, in the opening pages of the Bible, God is already pointing to Calvary. He's already pointing to the hope that we're going to have in Jesus Christ. He's already starting what Charles Spurgeon said was the scarlet thread that runs all the way through the Bible of the hope that starts in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 with our fall and then begins to, to go throughout the whole Bible to show that this is what we can have. Here's what we deserve, but this is what we can have because of this one who loved us so much. Genesis chapter 45. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be uh, one somewhere in front of you, kind of underneath one of the seats in front of you. Feel free to take that, especially if you don't have a Bible at home. We would love for you to have that Bible. It's on page 45 this morning. And um, uh, we'd love for you to put your name in there. If you don't have a Bible, take that home so that you can read the story over and over and over again and all the other wonderful things that God has for us. It's hard to turn on the TV nowadays without finding some kind of a, uh, a show that shows some form of restoration, especially home shows, where they go in and they take maybe an old home and they begin to restore it, and uh, whether that's to flip that house, whether it's to improve it and live there. But uh, those are always fascinating. Our, our TV, when it's on, for the most part, doesn't go off of HGTV, Cooking Channel, and a couple others. We're, we're pretty, uh, or the Braves. You know, it's one of those things. There's only a, about four channels that we frequent. Uh, Grit TV. Anybody know Grit TV? Yes. That, that's, you know, that's my one. If it's just me, that's nothing but old cowboys, Bonanza, Ponderosa. It's this, that, and the other. And, uh, but it, our, our TV doesn't vary from that too much. But I love stories of restoration because there's something about both the artistic ability to do something like that and something old becoming new again. There's just something that, something that has lost value and then all of a sudden becomes very valuable again. And whether it's a classic old painting, this is an example of a restoration that was done on a classic old painting. You can see where it's kind of tattered and torn and, and uh, somebody comes in there with the ability. I mean, if, if I was in charge of this, <laughs> it wouldn't look like that one that you see there on your right. It, it would really look messed up. But they have that ability to see, okay, here's the original intention. Here's what's been destroyed. Here's been, what's been corrupted. And here's how we can restore it to its former glory. Now, most of us are not as familiar with old classical paintings. Uh, ours is more of this kind of nature. Maybe it's a piece of furniture where you see something that, you know, maybe out there by somebody's, you know, trash. The, the trash men are going to come by. Uh, how many of you have ever picked up somebody else's trash before? I just want to... Good. I'm proud of you. That's good. <laughs> Especially during the college years, it's like that's a perfectly good couch there. It only has three holes on it, and, you know. In it, and so you know, you, you see that. And, and but isn't it amazing how you can take something that has lost its value? I don't know that too many people are going to display 
that chair that's on the left in their living room. Maybe they would, but, but probably not because they would be ready to take that to the trash. And yet somebody comes along and says, you know, with some, a little bit of effort and with the knowledge and the ability to do that, I can take something that was old and I can, can make it like new again and in many cases make it almost better than new. And then all of a sudden you have something like that and you're going, man, I'm proud of that. And I don't know about you, but I get a certain joy when something that is old and worn out becomes new. You just look at that and you're going, man, you're just kind of, I don't know if it's just kind of being feeling proud or if it's the joy of something that was dead that has been brought back to life again. Go, go on to the next one. This is pretty amazing, yeah. You know, you look at the one on the left and you're going, okay, that just needs to be sold for scrap metal. And then all of a sudden you, you see with somebody with the knowledge, with the ability. Again, I would not be able to produce that picture there on the right, but, but the people that have that knowledge and that talent and that ability to come in and they're able to take something very old and worn out. Uh, of course, the guys in the back asked me what year that was, and I said, I'm clueless. Got it off of Google, you know, just needed some pictures this morning. So if you know what model that is, you can share that with me later on so that I can knowledge it. Go on to the next one. Furniture, again, taking something that uh, at one time was brand new and useful and all that. Over the years, it's had some wear and tear, and all of a sudden, you know, people have kind of uh, uh, maybe even abused it a little bit, or it served a purpose, and that purpose is no longer being served. And all of a sudden, they put time and effort, and they make it maybe even better than new. But you know where it really becomes personal is, is when it's your life that is being restored. Maybe it's your family picture. Something, you know, you find a picture of your great-great-grandmother or something like that, and it's that picture that you said, you know, it's all tarnished, it's all torn up, and, and yet you see the beauty of your great-great-grandmother or your great-grandmother, and you, you want that restored. That's when restoration really becomes important. It's not just kind of a hobby anymore. It's not just something that, you know, that, well, that's good that they were able to take that old chair, that old car, that old whatever, and make something new. When it's something that's personal to you, and it's old and it's tarnished. And somebody has the ability to make something that was old and maybe even seemingly useless. And they show the beauty that was there. Or make it more beautiful than you ever imagined. This, this is the story that we see in Genesis 45. This is the gospel. You hear me say that phrase a lot, guys? It's not because that's the only phrase I know. I'm not trying to be redundant in the fact but, but everything that we do is around the gospel. The only hope you and I have is the gospel of what Christ has come and this plan that he had to, to come and live and dwell among us, to live a perfect life, to lay down his life sacrificially for us so that we could put our trust and faith in that and that alone. That's the gospel, and this is everything that we preach. When I don't preach the gospel, please fire me. If I don't preach the gospel, please line me up and let's have a, uh, you know, a shooting squad out there and just, you know, we'll just you know, let you take my life because if I... This is what Paul said. He said, if I can't preach the gospel, if I don't have the gospel preached, I have nothing to preach. There's nothing left. We're not preaching morality, even though the gospel would lead us to be more moral people. We're not preaching good works, even though the gospel changes our heart and we want to do good for other people. And so this morning, we get down to the foundation. And even here in the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 45, and I promise you, you perhaps will not see a more clear image of the gospel of the New Testament and the Old Testament than Genesis chapter 45. Because we begin to see this beauty coming through the life and the story and this account and narrative 
of, of Joseph. When we last, uh, last left last week, uh, in chapters 43 and 44, and I realize we went a little bit long last week. I, I don't apologize for that. I just acknowledge that, uh, that there were kids back there screaming. <laughs> it is 1210. We need to be out of here. Uh, but we covered two chapters, and because it was just that, that part of the story was kind of crucial for us to get all of that out. This morning we're just going to look at chapter 45, and where we're at is it's been 20 plus years. Joseph is now second command of all of Egypt by God's ordination, by his placement, and by the talent that he gave to Joseph. But God is in the midst of every bit of this. And his brothers have come back because there's a famine going on. This is actually the second of a seven-year famine, that, famine that's been predicted. And, and it's the second year, and they've already run out of, of food, not just once, but twice. Remember, they've already come once, and they were accused of being spies. Uh, they're afraid to go back because they're going to, they, we already have a, kind of a mark on our record here, and if we go back... Plus, they were told by Joseph that do not come back, even though he hasn't revealed his identity to his brothers yet, and it's still a mystery to them, do not come back unless you bring the youngest brother, Benjamin. So they go back, and they get hungry again. You run out of food, you get hungry, and so their father says, you need to go back into Egypt, and you need to get more food, and here's the money for that. And they're going, look, it's kind of a kind of a hairy situation. And number one, all the money that we were going to, pay for those first supplies, we've just found in, in our bags. And so now not only are they going to say that you're thieves, they're probably going to say that our, our spies are going to say that we're thieves also. Uh, the other part of this, Dad, that, that's really kind of hard is that they want us to bring Benjamin. In fact, he said, do not even come back unless we bring our youngest brother. But we know that Jacob loves all of his children, but he loves the youngest one, Benjamin, the best. It was his other child besides Joseph that he had from his wife that he loved and endeared his, the true love of his life. And, and so he doesn't want to do that, but they know that there's no other way. So finally he concedes. And it's the oldest brother Judah, or not the oldest brother, the second oldest brother Judah, that comes in and begins to, to say, okay, Dad, I pledge that I, if for some reason something happens to Benjamin, you can take it all out on me. When they get back there, they have a big feast. They still don't know that this is their brother, Joseph. They just know that he's in authority. And they come back, and Joseph feeds them, and they're going, okay, this is a setup. Somehow we're going to be taken to his house and thrown into prison. That doesn't happen. They just have a great feast. And finally, at the end of that feast, they were ready to go home, and they're ready to have supplies. And Joseph had had one of his attendants to add, to take his silver cup that he drank from and put it into Benjamin's bag. If you remember, as we stopped the story last week, that they were accused of, okay, we can't find the silver cup of Joseph and uh, of, of the second in command. And all the brothers are going, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And they opened up their bags one by one, starting with the oldest going to the youngest. And each time it was empty of that. It was empty of the silver cup. And they're thinking great relief when they finally get down to the youngest, Benjamin, and he opens up his bag. And what do they find there? silver cup and you remember what there was two things that happened instantly one kind of physically mentally in their life the other one spiritually in their life but both of them connected together they they almost passed out they they began to shake with a fear they had this really holy fear because they're going oh my goodness the worst thing that could have happened has happened and not only we're not going to be able to take Benjamin back but our father will surely die 
So that was one thing that was going on, but there was something else that was going on that God had been developing in their heart, and that was conviction of a sin that they had from 20 years before when they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. And the minute that he opens up, and and all this is becoming, you know, they see the silver cup, they said, God, basically, our wording, God has found out. Found out what? I thought they stole the cup because they didn't. They were set up from that. I just found out about our sin from 20 years ago. That's where we come into this morning. They acknowledge their sin. And when we left last week, we see this redeeming quality come back from um, Judah, one of the brothers. And he says, look, you know, I know that you found it in Benjamin's bag. He's the youngest. Our dad will surely die if we don't bring Benjamin back. Take me knowing that that was a life sentence of slavery, that was a life sentence of serving, that he would die there, separated from his family, never to see his father again. He knows that, and yet he he does this very Christ-like thing. He says, take my life. That's where we ended. That's where we open up in chapter 45. Joseph sees this, and look what happens, verse 1 and 2. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those, those, excuse me, for, before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So he's got this house full. He's got all kinds of attendants and people that help him. And he dismisses everybody except for the brothers. Why? Because he can't control himself anymore. Why? Because there's this emotion dwelling within him of pure compassion when he sees that one of his brothers truly has a transformed heart. That same brother that years before, hey, let's not kill him, let's at least sell him and get some money. And you remember what they did with some of the money? Do you remember what they did right after? They had this big feast. Remember they, they ate, they didn't seem concerned whatsoever that they had just sold their brother into slavery. They just had a big party that night. What a callous heart. What an unfeeling heart. And now 20 years later, because of the conviction of God, not because all of a sudden they became very moral people, but because of the loving conviction of God, they see their sin, and he says, you take my life instead of Benjamin's. And Joseph sees that, and he begins to weep. He dismisses everybody, verse 2, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. I mean, this wasn't a little whimper. This is when a guy trying to be studly and, you know, yeah, got a little sweat in my eye. Joseph lost it, guys. For, for all the men here, Joseph lost it. He's second in control. He's a man's man, and he loses it because there's something that he sees that God has done in the life of his family that he could have never have done, that he couldn't have legislated, he could not have orchestrated it in any way. And he begins to cry, and he begins to cry so loud that even the people that had left the room, they begin to hear this. And that's when his hurt turns into hope. And all of a sudden, his, his heart changes because he sees a heart change in somebody else. Have you ever hurt over a, a family member, a loved one, a son or a daughter, a mother or a father? Somebody that you really care for, and you just you hurt for them because you see sin in their life, you see uh, rebellion in their life, and and you just don't see, you know, for years maybe you don't see them turning to Christ. You don't see them getting the available hope. And, and all of a sudden that hurt, all of a sudden you see something in their life that gives a shimmer of hope that, man, they came to church with me this morning. Not like going to church instantly, 
makes you saved. And then all of a sudden, that going to church instantly changes your life. And it certainly is a, ch- a step in the right direction if we're preaching the gospel. If you're surrounded by loving people, and all of a sudden, in your life, that hurt turns into hope. Maybe this is the first step. But here's the hard part of hurt turning into hope. Have you ever had hurt turn into hope over one thing, and then three weeks later it gets back into hurt again because the person continues to rebel, they continue to fail, they continue to struggle in some of the things that they're struggling with. And so you go through that cycle over and over and over again. You're going, now I've lost hope to even have hope. You know what I'm talking about there? Sometimes when you lose hope to even have hope, over 20 years, I imagine that Joseph had many of those times. And he had lost hope, but maybe even even having hope again. And here hope comes back into his life. All those emotions, all these different things. He cries so loud that everybody hears it. And yet his brothers still don't know that this is Joseph. Look what happens in verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Imagine what they said to themselves. We're dead. It's over. There's no way. You know, they're already starting to feel the conviction of God upon their life of this sin from 20 years before. But now they're going, okay, now there's a guy that can testify to what we did 20 years ago. There's a witness that convict us, can convict us in court that we really did sell our own brother into slavery. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And what's the first thing they asked? This is so beautiful. Is my father still alive? You're going to see him mention his father, I think it's four different times, just in this chapter. And again, this is part of the pre-picture of Christ, too, of Christ and the Father. There's so many. Uh, One of the great theologians said that there's 101, he counted 101 different uh, types of Christ, or uh, uh, ways that that Joseph is a type of Christ in, in Genesis 37 through 50. And throughout this chapter, you see it over and over again. But the brothers hear this and they're confused. And it says, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, did they know if the father was alive or not? Yeah. So when it says that they could not answer, it's not because of the lack of knowledge. What it is? What is it? Now, that's only happened to me a few times in my life that I actually could not say something. I can usually talk in about any situation. (laughs) But have you ever been speechless? because of hurt, because of wonder, because of conviction, because of whatever. They're without words. Is is my father still alive? And they're just pure terror, guys, has now gripped their heart. It has seized them, not just uh, in a physical way, but but in an emotional way, and even in a spiritual way, down to their very soul. They're just seized by a holy fear, and, and they can't even think of anything except their past sins. This is the good time to, to explain this theological concept of what's taking place here. When I say that Joseph is a type of Christ, it does not mean that he's the pre-incarnate Christ. It doesn't mean that Christ takes on Joseph's body. What it means is that God is already using a real person, not a story, not a fictitious person, a real person, Joseph, and he's showing a Christ-like quality in him to give hope to the generations that are awaiting for Christ to actually come. This is about 1,800 years before 
Christ will actually be born in Bethlehem, somewhere between 1,700 and 1,800 years. And it's not the last time that God is going to give us a type of Christ in the Old Testament. But he's doing it already because, guys, 20 years is a long time, but 1,800 years, that's a real long time. Not to have any hope. And so we see this type of Christ in Joseph even here. Uh, He's not the real Christ. Make sure that you don't hear that, but he's a picture of the real Christ. Look at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. They said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, as if they had to be reminded. And when their sin uh, had made them want to distance themselves, usually sin draws us apart. If I sin against you, my brother, usually I don't want to see you in Kroger. Have you, have you ever skipped a lane at the grocery store or some other place? Because you saw somebody. Now, sometimes we do that because we know, okay, if I go over there, she's going to talk for the next 45 minutes, and I don't have 45 minutes. But have you ever avoided somebody in a social setting because it was just not a good relationship? It just, you didn't feel really comfortable. Maybe it was your sin. Maybe it was their sin. I mean, sin distances us. It, it kind of drives us apart. And what's the first thing that, besides asking about his father, that Joseph tells when he addresses him, he says, come near to me. This is Christ. This is, this is this type of Christ. That when we sin, guys, the natural thing is that we want to go, we want to run as far away from church, church people, the pastor. The last thing you want is the pastor knocking on your door when you've just been deep in rebellion and, and sin. And, and you know, what does Christ do? We sing about it before he runs after us. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, the, last, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And in that lost son, who has gone off because of a rebellion, he, he finally comes to his senses. It says in Luke 15:17, he comes to his senses, and he realizes the relationship that he's been missing with the father, and he heads home, this prodigal heads home. And do you remember what that parable, that story that Jesus told what the father did, as he comes over the, the, the horizon and that son is there. Do you remember what the father did? What did he do? He ran to the son. Now, I was telling the, the praise man this morning, I was going, guys, there would have been an audible gasp when Jesus told that to a Jewish crowd. That broke every cultural norm that you can even imagine. A father <laughs> never ran to a son, especially a rebellious, disobedient son. And yet, What was Christ trying to demonstrate in a lost sheep and a lost coin? It's the searching mentality. Man, I'll leave 99 to go after the one. I've got nine of the coins. I just lost one coin, but I'm going to keep on searching until I find that lost one. And in that story, the intimacy of that. There would have been an audible gasp, and then there would have been murmuring. The Jewish religious experts would have murmured. This Jesus guy, he is so far off. That would never happen. And yet this is what Jesus was trying to demonstrate. And that's what's happening here. They're shaking for their very life. Are we going to live through this? Here's the guy that can actually tell the story of what we did 20 years ago. We are already convicted of it. We know that we are guilty of it. And yet this is the guy that can truly put us to death. He says, come here. 
come near to me. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me here to preserve your life. One of the hardest maturities of the Christian life, you can be a Christian 20, 30, 40, 50 years. One of the hardest maturities in the Christian life is to get to the place where I believe that Joseph is here, that he actually sees God did not cause their sin. He did not make them sell. That that was their free will, their choice to rebel, and the jealousies of their heart, and the fruit of generations of generational sin. And yet what he is saying here is, look, in all of that I see God. That none of this trumped God's sovereignty and his ultimate plan. Now guys, let's take a time out really quick and take it from the story from so many thousand years ago and put it into your life. Here's, here's the hope, guys. Here's the hope. There is nothing that man can do to you. There is nothing that man can do to you to thwart the purposes of God in your life. Please do not hear... I've, I've never been abused. I, I've never been, you know, the harshness of life that I hear about, that people have had to suffer through. This is not an uncaring heart. This is not an unfeeling heart. This is a belief that goes beyond all this tragic and all this hatred and all this complexity that's here on earth and looks back to the providence and the sovereignty of God and says, okay, when it all settles down, can I, could I say if I was a victim of, of some kind of physical abuse, a sexual abuse, of this abuse. Can I say, you know, God didn't cause that, but none of that thwarted God's plan for my life. Very complex, very complex. I'm not trying to be profound. I'm actually trying to be simple. Because if you have been a victim of some of those things, I, I understand I'm not looking from your vantage point, and I understand that I have, and you're going, Bob, you just don't know what it's like. How could you ever say that that was of God? I'm not saying it was of God. I'm saying it's not out of the control of God, out of the, the God being able to use that. But that evil person in your life did not thwart the plans that God has for you. And either that's going to be so abrasive to you because you have this past or it's going to be freeing to you. And I pray that it's the latter. Because I do not say it with an unsympathetic heart. I do not say it with an uncaring heart. I just say it from the truth of what God is saying. And what Joseph was able to say here, Joseph was not being magnanimous. Joseph was not being a hero. He wasn't trying to just man up. He was saying, 20 years, guys, think of what he's been through. And he said, look, in and, and all of this, I can see that God can even use this. God didn't cause it. God would never cause somebody to sin. But none of this, none of this thwarted the plans of the gospel. He calms them down. He reassures them with theological truth. Folks, this is the gospel. See, one of the things that we see in this passage, in this narrative, very clear, is that ultimately God is sovereign over all of these things. That, that's what this means. It, it does not mean that we are free from having evil perpetrated upon us. You, you could give testimonies today. Bobby, I can tell you about evil. Let me tell you about the home that I grew up in. Let me tell you about my first husband. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. 
I promise you, there are stories that you could tell where you would make, we would make the clear declaration, evil exists in this world. But here's the hope. This is what we're running to because this is the hope of the gospel. That even though man may mean evil against us, that in the providence of God, that God can even use that for good. And that's why I'm saying some of us, 20, 30, 40 years into our Christian walk, we may still not be able to, to, to have that maturity to be able to see that. Joseph, by the grace of God, sees that. How do we know that? Because, oh, because he mentioned God's name there once? No, look at verse 7. What does he lead off with there? And God sent me before you to preserve for you a, a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. What does he mean by that? God made a covenant with who? Abraham. And remember, he's the great-great-grandfather of Joseph. He says, look, he made this promise, and he's going to keep his promises. God keeps his promises. And yet, your family would have died out there because there was no food in your land. And yet he put, pointed me, second in command, I've got control over this food. And he has purposely put me here. Why? So that you could come and get food, and you could live to the next day. Now, could God have done that supernaturally? Yeah. He made manna come out of the sky. But in this story, we don't see anything supernatural. What we see is nature happening and God working supernaturally in the midst of natural events. Look at the next verse. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you think you get to that place? In your, if you're Joseph, do you get that place the day after they sell you off and you're marching back to Egypt in, in, in chains? Do you think you get there when, you, when you're thrown back into prison, even though you did the right thing? How do you get to that place? This is Christian maturity, guys. But it's built upon Christian truth, not on an emotion. And that's why sometimes it may take 15, 20, 30 years to develop this, be able, this ability to see, okay, God was in the midst of this, that even all this evil, even though God didn't cause this evil, this evil did not thwart God's ultimate plan and calling upon my life. Verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, this, uh, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Again, let's make sure they were theologically correct here. God is not causing the brothers to sin. To say this in a theological correct way, the brother's sin does not thwart the plans of God. And ultimately, this is the control that no one can have over you. They can, you know, somebody could imprison me. They could, they could take me and put me into a jail cell. They could only ration my food. This, there's a lot of things that, God, that people can do, but one they can do is stop the plan that God has for me. And this great truth is both personal and it's corporate. It's for the, the family of God. Um, God will ultimately prevail. There is no thing, there is no one that can keep us from God's ultimate plans for us. We see this reflected in a lot of scriptures. In Proverbs 19.21, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. For, let me give you an example of this, this providence of the sovereignty of God. Can anything hold back, no matter what mankind would ever do, Jesus Christ coming back for his church? It's going to happen, guys. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know all these things. Nothing can thwart that plan of God. And it's easy for us to kind of take that because in one way, it's kind of a non-emotional. 
I mean, yes, it's going to be very emotional on the day, especially if we're, for some reason we didn't make it. But it's one of those things that we're going, okay, that's kind of this big idea, and of course God's going to do that. But the same principle is in place, that this God who's ordained these things for Christ to come back for his bride, for him to redeem the church and gather the church to spend all eternity with, that this is the same thing that on a personal level, God, God has that same kind of call upon your lives. But look here, not only does he begin to restore this relationship, but he, uh, he begins to provide in this relationship. Verse 10 and 11. You shall dwell in the house of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, and the flocks uh, of your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. Uh, there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not have poverty. And basically what he says, okay, look, there's a place right down the street. It's, it's one of the best fields and lands and houses, that's yours. And, and I call you to have this, I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to give you this provision so that all of my family, and later on it tells us there's like 70 that come when he goes back and they all come, it's like 69 or 70 or 71. You know, then when they come back to live here for these next five years, it, the whole family comes and he makes provision for them. But let that sink in for a second. It'd be one thing for for Joseph to come up and say, hey, Nate, you were one of the brothers, and I forgive you. That's pretty magnanimous, isn't it? It's another one to say, okay, not only do I forgive you, but look, there's this place right down here, and I know that you're without food, and I know instead of going back and forth to, 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 the, you know, to the Father, just y'all come and live here. And I will give you the best. Because there's still five more years of this famine to go on. And so I want you to live right here with me. Guys, that's, that's kind of a step up for just being forgiven. That actually there's provision there. But not only that, he invites them into an intimate relationship. Look at verse 14 and th- uh, 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. In other words, they feel so estranged. They feel like, oh my goodness, if I saw this guy pull into Kroger parking lot, I'm going to make sure that I don't get out of the car. I'm going to go the other way. This is just too tense. This is just too weird. I have this offense against them. And yet he says, not only come draw near, not only does he say, I have this place for you that has all the food that you're going to need for the next five years. He comes up and he grabs them and he hugs them and he begins to kiss upon them with tears flowing from them. This is the gospel, guys. This is the gospel. That we don't stand before God someday and he's in, you know, in his holiness and we're standing before him and he says, Thou art forgiven. I mean, that would be amazing. Would it be not amazing that God would just utter this, You are forgiven. But he says, Here, I'm going to provide for you. I have a place for you. And you're my child. He calls us into intimacy. It's one thing for God to say you're forgiven of your sins and now you just kind of go off. But that's not where the relationship with God goes. He doesn't just say you're forgiven of your sins. He says, no, I'm your provider. And I draw you into intimacy. Through Christ we have forgiveness. 
That's mercy. Mercy is when you deserve one thing and you're not giving what you deserve. That's mercy. And sometimes we, we mix up. Remember the sermon four or five months ago, difference between mercy and grace? They're both great, and God gives us both. But mercy is when you deserve this, and he does not give us that. Grace is, well, okay, I'm going to give you something above and beyond. And that's when he may starts to make this provision. And then he says, I, I, but I want this intimate relationship. He draws near. He grabs their neck. He begins to... to to, to love on them and, and, and to cry with them. One of my favorite authors is Tim Keller. And uh, he writes all kinds of books, and he's a great theologian. And he, this is my favorite. I have all kinds of favorite quotes from Spurgeon, Keller, all these different guys that I just admire. And this is my favorite one. And it's quite simple and yet very profound. Keller wrote, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. This isn't the result of just being forgiven. You don't have access if you're just forgiven. You're just forgiven. You just don't have to suffer the penalty. And folks, if that's all that God did for us, he would be a wonderful, merciful, wonderful God. And yet that's not where it stops. He says, okay, I'm going to provide for you. Even a glass of water at 3 a.m. Why? Because you're my child and I, I call you into this intimacy. Let me read Revelation 21, um, verses 3 through 7. It's not going to be up here on the board if you want to open your Bibles. I I don't know what page it is on the few Bibles. It's it's the last book. So we're going from the first book of the Bible. We're going to the last book of the Bible. Because I want you to see this scarlet thread that Spurgeon talked about that goes all the way through the Bible, this hope of the gospel that goes from Genesis all the way to the very end. Here's here's where it goes. Revelation 21. It's the second to the last chapter in all the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 3 through 7. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he said, Who is seated on the throne? Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is the gospel. And this is why Joseph is this type of Christ in the Old Testament because this is our hope. This is what Christ offers you today, guys. It's not just forgiveness of your sin. He does that. But he doesn't stop there. He goes and goes, not only will I forgive your sins, but in this restoration, I'll be a provider for you. And he provides for us in in so many different emotional, physical, spiritual ways. And then he says, but I'm not going to even just stop there. I'm not just going to be kind of this God who's this good granddaddy up in heaven, and I give you things. No, I will provide for you intimacy. You are my child. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is our hope. And this is what Joseph displays. 
thousands of years ago, about 1,800 years before Christ ever is born into that little manger, God has given us a foretaste of this hope in a picture of what Joseph is doing there. He's not the Christ, but he's a picture of what Christ one day will do. And this is our hope. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, it would be one thing if you just gave us forgiveness. Father, if we just did not have to pay the penalty of our sins, Father, that would be so magnanimous. That would be so wonderful. We would praise you that we actually were forgiven. Father, there would be such a joy that we don't have to suffer what we really deserve. And yet, Father, that's not where you end the relationship of this restoring into the lives of those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Father, like Joseph, you say, draw near. Like Joseph, you said, hey, I've got a house over here in the land of Goshen, and it's got the best of everything. And Father, like Joseph, you come and you weep on our neck, and you hold us, and you speak to us individually. And you perfectly restore a broken relationship. Your grace, your mercy, the intimacy that you give to us, Father. How amazing. And so, Father, now, as we go out back into this life, Father, you had this type of Christ in the Old Testament. Father, you've called us to be like your son, Christ, now, and that we would reflect these things. That, Father, that we would be people that, because we've been forgiven, that we forgive. That because we've been provided for, that we are providers for others, grace and mercy and love and acceptance. And you call us into intimate relationships because you have become intimate with us. So, Father, as we live in a world of brothers who have sinned against us, as we live in a world of evil, Father, help us always to be reminded of this call, this this clarion call that you've placed upon our lives to come to you, to live in you as you live in us, and for us to reflect Christ's likeness everywhere we go. We love you and we thank you, Father, as we pray all these things in Christ's name. listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.